Yeah. I rather like the beam talk radio. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I we don't actually have talk radio, I don't think, uh, but I know it's an American thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you do. Yeah. Just sort of like. I mean, we have I've, radio where people talk, but we don't have talk radio the way you guys have talk radio. I don't think. I don't think I, I, don't think I know the distinction. I got the. I've gotten the impression that talk radio is a pretty loud kind of deal. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Yeah. You've got like, that. Oh, hello, opinions. Hello, opinions. That's right. Opinions, welcome, opinions. welcome, everybody, to Beam Radio. We are chiming in from. Yeah. Sunny New Jersey. And then a bunch of sound effects happen. Yeah. And we have variants of that, but I mean, it's still, it's all sort of yeah. trying to copy it. And also we're Swedish, we're slightly reserved. So <laughs> or it's like in the middle of the show, it's like, okay, that's enough. That's enough. Enough yeah. with the sound effects. That's... Calm down. Calm down. Uh, I mean, this, the language we speak has a specific word for not too much and not too little. Okay. The Goldilocks, you know, you got a little Goldilocks. Yeah, it's not, it's also not perfect. It's just about right, is probably yeah. the. Hmm. Yeah, just about right. That's correct. What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. Welcome back to Beam Radio, everyone. I'm Stephen Nunez, and today we've got something really special planned. This is an episode of the Beam Radio Talk Radio. Uh, today it'll just be Lars and I. Hey Lars, how's it going? Oh, can't complain. We're trying to spend some time with the panelists, get to know them a little better, you know, coax out some rage, uh, some excitement, and you know, just uh, give you better insight to who we are. Yeah, and the prompt for this one was definitely rage. That's what I hear. <laughs> so uh, before we get into it, uh, I guess we should also shout out our sponsor, Groxio career fuel for programmers uh, they keep doing cool stuff bruce isn't here so he can't tell us all about it that's right yeah. bruce could use some more rage i want to i want like a rage oh. rage uh Groxio course you know just like just him yelling at the compiler for you know an hour you know and just walking away coming back oh, i think he could produce real good anger if he, <laughs> if he tried but i don't think we'll ever see it he's a bit of a pro bruce the people have spoken we want rage the next course, pure rage. I mean, he's been called the Bob Ross of programming. Uh, so I don't I think fully, it's his brand. I fully, in, I fully endorse that. Um, uh, yeah, that, that branding for him. Uh, yeah, so we can talk about some of the rage, some of my rage, more like frustration uh, that I ran into. So a bit of story time. Uh, I was out with some friends and uh, all work in tech, engineering manager, software developer. And they were asking around, if you were picking a, you know, a language for a new project, uh, what would it be? Everyone you know, is thinking, thinking, thinking. I'm also thinking, you know, but I know what my answer is going to be, most likely. Uh, it goes around and it's like Python, Python. They both agree Python's the way to go. And then they turn to me and they're like, what would you choose? What would you choose? And I was like, for what kind of app? Right? Because you know, that's, that's important too. Uh, they were like a web app, a regular web app. So I was like, okay, Elixir, Elixir and the Beam, hundred percent, final answer. And they're like, well, what if you don't need multi-core? What if you were building something that didn't need multi-core? And my response was, when would you not need multi-core? Like, what what computer can you even run? Can you even get an AWS instance that has like a single core? Um, 
like there's no reason to not use this primitive. And I, I think a lot to what got me interested and excited in the beam in general, which was it's so easy to fall into concurrency and parallelism that it just happens for you. Even a dummy like me can figure it out. So what have you come across this argument, Lars, this idea of like, well, what if you don't need multi-core? I've run into similar ones for sure, where it's like, yeah, but I don't think we, I don't think we need anything. We're not doing anything fancy like that. It's, we're not doing distribution. We're not doing da 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 da. And it's like, but dude, it's just more efficient. Yeah. So, if you're, in many cases, I've seen people go for Node.js in comparison, right. and that right. sort of drives me a little bit nuts. Right. I can get behind having cultural or skill, uh, like skill related reasons to pick something that's suitable. I don't mind Python uh, as an answer for, for building a web app because Django is a super quick way to get an admin up and running. And at certain points, I would say it beats Elixir and Phoenix in, in pure velocity, but I don't think it has a, holds a candle in maintainability and definitely not in performance. So, but Node, specifically like okay python is almost in some ways worse but node is this race to io otherwise you're screwed because That's you're right. eating up cpu time like node is fast but it's fast in a, the dumbest possible way it's fast uh, at delegating work to someone else who is yeah. really good at doing the thing um i find that yeah i find that uh, that perspective is really interesting well node is node is really fast and i, I always go back to looking at it on paper right your node instance has a single node process is running on a single core. You can spin up multiple processes, um, but you're spinning up multiple processes of your application. So you don't have app coordination and you don't have just the things you get for free um, by using the beam. And I think that the other part of the argument is not even why, why not multi-core, you don't have multi-core needs or distribution needs. It's that if you need those, they're there for you without any extra work. Like, I think that that was one of the things that was really frustrating to me is that your your floor is the floor you get when working with Elixir, Phoenix, and other Beam languages. And we'll talk about nerves and all this other stuff. But the floor is the ceiling for a lot of other, even frameworks, right? Like yeah. you've got to really push them to do this, uh, you know, performance work, right? Like in the Phoenix book, I'm, rem I'm remembering the uh, Chris McCord's book. He talks about how like as a consultant, he's made a ton of money just optimizing routes files in Ruby. The pattern matching is like, is in the compiled code. It's as fast as it can be, right? We're pattern matching for routes. That's for free. You start there, right? WebSockets uh, are a first-class citizen in the framework. You start there. And even if your application has no need for live things, which is harder and harder to justify when you have, if you have live yeah. view available, you're starting with world-class battle-tested like libraries that have that are running right now like why would this not be your base uh, that actually uh, speaks to an experience i had very recently where i implemented feature flags in a client application or in a client's application <laughs> i should say uh, and it was supposed to be simple and you manage it from the admin that's just like toggle this feature on or off so we can can hide some things that are not ready but that we want to ship partial 
And the easiest way was to make it fully real time. <laughs> it was the most straightforward way. We It has a separate sort of front end. So it's not live view, it's Elm uh, of all things. But it's already eating off of a Phoenix channel. So pushing a, the flags whenever they're changed was just straightforward. That was right. the easy approach. And I don't think that would have been the case in many other many other frameworks. It's like, oh, how do I communicate this out? Uh, Phoenix pops up, bam, done. Right, it's easy. Subscribe here, yeah. and then you'll receive a message, handle info, push, you're done, right? Yeah. And it's it's it really is sort of like the the, again, the floor is so much higher to start with, right? Oh, we have a, you know, we, I, we have to figure out a way to like, you know, have our clusters communicate for some reason. Like if you had to do this, okay, well, maybe we can spin up like a, I don't know, a Redis server to store some like state, use maybe Redis locks to make sure that one is not, uh, you know, reading at that point. And then you can hand off the state to the other server. And it's like, or you cluster them using your, your, your favorite flavor of clustering, um, Elixir applications or Beam applications, yeah. and you you do the pub sub thing, you know, um, RPC done. Like I don't, I can do RPC for free, right? If I have a, a cluster, I can just you know call a function on a process on a different server as long as I have a reference for it. Um, it reminds me of we did we built uh, back when I was at the Flatiron School. We built this like online IDE, and it really shows you the power of what you can do to prototype things. Um, we we had these like this fleet of uh, servers that were load balanced by region. And then you would get a Docker container and then like, you know, log in and it would pull down your work and it was really nice. But what was cool was because we had them clustered and they knew about each other, we built a little side application that let us know who's active right now in an IDE session. And we even prototyped being able to like jump in to help a student in their IDE in their session, because it's just a PID and we modified when IO went into a terminal, how do you get it out? When file system events went, you know, hit the disk, they emitted an event, how do we get those out? And it just becomes this really beautiful way of just message passing and listening and handling, handling messages and you get it for free, right? I, I do think that a lot of it is because people haven't had a chance to um, kind of get used to the better fitting clothes that is like the Beam ecosystem. Yeah, and I don't think you invite a lot of unnecessary complexity. I think that's what a lot of people are concerned about. Like, if you haven't dealt with Elixir and Phoenix, I think you might start thinking about, oh, it's this whole Erlang Beam OTP thing. Right. Uh, I guess that's sort of Kubernetes, right? <laughs> like, oh, but we don't need clustering. We're not doing any data science over here. And it's like, no, I don't either. I make web right. apps. Exactly. But I don't have to screw around in as much. Now, to go back to your multi-core, like I've, I've built applications that don't deal with multiple cores and don't need multi-core. I don't believe that the Pi Zero is multi-core. Hmm. I might be wrong, but if it is, it has two cores and both are slow as dog. But <laughs> I think the expression is actually dog slow, but uh. I'll allow it. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> uh, but the advantage of the beam is still there because you have this preemptive multitasking where whatever heavy work you're pushing on this poor, sad little CPU 
is pretty effect efficiently dealt with. And it's like, oh, this is going to take a ton of time. Okay, it's going to get bumped off of the scheduler if something else needs to happen as well. And right. then it's going to get picked back up. And all of this means that you can very efficiently use a core. And you can run a core at 100% and still have requests being responded to. And that's, that's difficult to get right with. So I haven't done it with the node to any serious degree, but I've definitely sat around trying to get Python to play nice in that regard mm. with the G event and their sort of green thread approach. And that's, that's essentially a worse Node.js, um, a slower and more problematic Node.js because it has this global interpreter of Optisimal. One of the most compelling demos for Elixir in the Beam has been the Sasha Yurich talk where he shows like, oh, now we screwed up this process and it's doing CPU bound work in a tight infinite loop. Our response times for the normal sort of health checks don't even budge because it doesn't really matter because it's doing very little work and it keeps getting rescheduled so other things can happen as well. Um, and that's true even if you have a single core, which I think is incredibly useful. But if you have multiple cores, then you have all this uh, work stealing. And so compared to running multiple instances of Node, for example, if you have a ton of heavy work that accidentally hits a single one of those processes, they can't share that load across the multiple cores. They can, like, maybe the kernel can switch around which core this heavy piece of work ends up on, but it can't split it across multiple cores, which the Beam can do effortlessly. If three schedulers are, are sort of idle and you have one that's heavily tasked, they will start stealing work, which is fantastic. It's like, yeah, maybe you don't need multi-core, but you should probably want it. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think the biggest thing is, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but we're, I know we're preaching to the choir a little bit. L dear listener, if you are listening to this, it's probably because you either are a fan of the beam or are from, you know, are curious about it, but you're probably in team beam, which is great. Welcome. Um, but the, the, the beauty of what you're talking about is whether it's a Pi Zero, which I looked it up, has a one gigahertz single core with 512 of RAM. So. Um, or it's a 326428 core beast of a server, you still write the code the same, right? You are, we're working with abstractions that let us just send it down to the scheduler and let all of that stealing happen, right? Um, and I think that that's, that's one of the other things that I, when I talk about the floor being other languages ceiling, it's like there are ways you can shoot yourself in the foot if the scheduler, uh, you know, thinking about like, uh, large binaries being sent between messages have a memory impact, right? They, they are a memory consequence where it'll be copied instead of being referenced, right? Like there, there are ways to shoot yourself in the foot, but the optimizations that you get by just using it as is, right? If you make a gen server, whether it's on that, on that Pi Zero or, you know, the, the mega server, the megalodon server, um, it's still going to be written the same way for you, the engineer, which I think is really powerful. It's fun how 
<laughs> how the beam sometimes uh, enables extreme performance uh, that might not be ideal in a desktop scenario. <laughs> so I've, I'm on a fairly beefy desktop machine uh, that I do my development on. So a Ryzen 5950X. So it has uh, 16 cores, 32 threads. And it's slightly frustrating when you are doing something Node.js related and like an NPM install, for example, or some, some similar processing like that. And it's like, oh yeah, it's spiking one core. Right. All right. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the nice part is the machine become, uh, stays incredibly responsive because it's barely doing any work. Right. Uh, but of course it could go faster if it did it in parallel. And I think there are alter, all, like I don't know if Yarn or friends actually do parallelize a bit. But if you compare that to when Elixir LS decides to run Dialyzer on a fresh, <laughs> huge code bank. That's it. It's like, just, just walk away. It's fine. It's, it's yeah, gonna... yeah. That, that actually locked up my machine until it resolved, uh, until I figured out, oh, yeah, I can actually slightly hack the, the settings to not run all the schedulers I need. So right. right. Leave fundamentally, me one, the beam is, is intended for servers, and it's intended to own most of the server. Right. I mean, if you want to say something um, in defense of other options, it's they don't necessarily <laughs> take over the entire server. It won't take I, over your whole computer. It won't use all of the cores you paid for it. It's fine. Yeah. That's a good thing. Trust yeah. me. Yeah. I know I know. there was a comment on Hacker News from someone at Discord where they were like, yeah, yeah, we don't really. I think it was about them not doing Docker. Hmm. Uh, but also that they generally considered it that the beam doesn't quite like sharing resources because they have heavy utilization. Now, if you are, if you're not sort of doing heavy CPU work, uh, sharing works perfectly fine. So I run a ton of beam, beam instances on one of my utility servers and the load is minuscule, so everything's fine. But of course, it will use your resources. And right. As it, it should. It expects that if you've said you have these cores, it has those cores. That's right. Will use Say them. no more, fam. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna go. It's going down. Yeah. And I, I think that that's that I think is the the idea the idea of like what if you don't need multi-core is just like, no, you you're paying for the server. Use it, right? You should use it. Like your utilization will be better, right? There is the there's a, a higher memory cost with these applications, right? As you start just functional languages in general have a higher memory cost. As you start dealing with channels and live views, you wind up having a higher memory cost. So you know nothing is for free. But I would say that's a fair trade-off. We don't exist in a world where, you know, you have 64 megabytes of memory on a server if you're, you know, balling. Um, we have monstrous amounts of memory. Right. So like this concern is it can be pushed off and you really won't have a concern. But if you did see, you know, there are ways to optimize that and to decide what you keep in memory and what you don't. Um, but by having this, this space to grow into this memory space to grow into, it creates things like, uh, you know, you could run a massive application on live views now, right? There's a huge memory cost to live view. 
because state exists in in processes, right? As, as yeah. that are run and long lived, um, that is just difficult to sort of replicate. Yeah, and in many cases, the servers are sort of oh, we have plenty of memory unless something has gone horribly wrong. <laughs> right. Right. Run <laughs> suddenly you have no memory and then your app restarts, but or your app is slowly draining away memory. That's a classic. But in many cases, it's oh, either we have plenty of memory, or this is a Redis instance, or this is a Postgres instance, and right. uh, memory is at a premium, and right. memory is the important part. But then that's typically a separate and dedicated server, and then memory is one of the biggest, biggest and most important parts. But for most app servers I've seen, memory utilization has been low, and right. that means you're leaving performance on the table most of the right. time. Yeah. yeah. I, I haven't really seen memory problems with the beam. I've seen the beam get killed due to memory problems, but it wasn't right. the beam that was eating all the memory. That was FFmpeg in that case. <laughs> <laughs> Which unfortunately meant, oh, FFmpeg is eating Being all this memory bad. or ImageMagick was eating all this memory. And uh, the OOM killer goes loose and like, ah, get him. this one and this one. one and this one. That's and it. then your beam crashes. For me, the, the OOM killer is definitely like a person walking around with a stick whacking processes on the head. No, no, yeah. no. Leave my beam process alone. Yeah, we got, we got tagged a couple of times for that too. Um, because something we were running, in our case, it was a Docker instance driven by an Elixir application. Yeah. A container was taking too much memory, which killed Docker, which killed the killed the beam. Yeah. Um, I think I think a lot about the the reasons for like what if you don't need multi-core as like you know kind of like a th there are reasons to think about like why not use Elixir or why there's sort of hesitancy to use it. One of them is the fact that it's a functional language, right? Functional immutable data. Um, it's just different to write that write that well. When I was training uh, my team on how to build these applications and like how to structure things, that was that was surprisingly one of the more challenging bits. We've talked about it on the show a bunch, but like having to like untrain people yeah. on all things OO, um, where you have this, uh, you know, I'd be, you teach like the CRC pattern, right? That Sophie and Bruce talk a bunch about this idea of, um, mutating this like tokenized representation of state through a series of functions that then either winds up transforming and being impure in certain places or calculating and then eventually becoming impure. Um, but I think that that's one thing that we have to kind of like figure out if we want to buy more people in. You know, we had Brooklyn recently talking about the talent pipeline and the training. Uh, yeah. We've got our great sponsor, Groxio, Career Fuel for Programmers, that, uh, it does a really good job at showing you what I think is the right way to start structuring and thinking about code. Um, but it's, it's hard to take that, that dive. It's almost like if you said, I don't know, like, I guess Lisp is functional. I was going to say something. I don't want to anger the, you know, the list, the Lispers. I know you're out there. Um, but yeah, the... I, I don't think you can get away with smearing a Lisp. <laughs> I don't no, think I anyone can get away with Smear. That's true. No, I can't. I can't. Lisp will happen someday. You know, it's just a matter of time before Lisp takes over. Um, but if you built this thing, it's also not just learning 
the frameworks and the language, well, the framework and you know all the supporting libraries that you have to build an application, but then also learning the way to think in functional in a functional way and how that is. So, um, yeah. I, I think it's a genuine concern that's like, well, how do I find? How do I teach? How do I train my team to think functionally? They don't think functional. It's not worth the cost. It is. Um, or how do I then hire people? That's the other thing, right? Like hiring people for Elixir positions. You know, when we were hiring at Flatiron School for people, we had a bunch of people who were really excited about specifically building in Elixir. Right? We had a few Elixir applications, our registrar, or the IDE, and a couple of other like support applications. And some people would come to the interview. It was like, you guys are doing Elixir. I want to be here. And I think that that's a testament to the community that we're building and, you know, getting people excited about genuinely cool things. But where there was one person who was excited about Elixir, there were 10 who were just like, yeah, I've never done anything functional. I don't know what Elixir is. I don't know. I looked into it briefly before this. It looks cool, kind of like Ruby, you know? Yeah. And I think that that's like, a, that's a concern. Like when it comes to hiring, do I have the pool that I have if I said Ruby developer or Python developer or Node developer, right? Don't yeah. maybe do it. Not yet. I think I can, with, a smidge of authority speak on on the talent pool because I'm I do recruitment with companies right now, and I will say finding mid level developers is a bit of a tricky one, hmm. and but finding positions for people that want to get into Elixir now that's that's the real sport. So junior roles right being posted. Um, there are senior developers out there. You typically need to have a pretty decent offer because there are a ton of good Elixir companies that are hiring and uh, the people that have sort of this two to five years of Elixir experience and a general senior experience, they have no shortage of work. So right. uh, they, they can typically take their pick. And uh, I've had some luck placing those with companies because uh, the companies I've dealt with have sufficiently clear and interesting uh, aspects to them. Like one is, has shown an incredibly sort of sustainable approach to what it means to have a, have a business and employ people. Another is like, oh, this for a startup, it's actually well well funded and it seems to have decent product market fit. Okay, yeah, I I could go for this and it's a built out large scale system. And another one I'm recently started hiring for has been like, oh, this is a chance to get in on the ground floor of a fairly sane startup. Uh, but I so appreciate I've that had, all those companies yeah. are like you know not trying to. They all seem to be even keeled. And wanting to build something sustainable. Yeah, and good. if if I stumble on a client, recruiting client that's like, oh, we just want to go fast and go hard and raw. Uh, we just want to get a, acquired by Facebook in six yeah. months. So let's go. Uh, I think there are developers that would go for that because they want a wild ride. Right. And and then I'd pitch it to those. <laughs> uh, there are some things I won't touch, but but I, not specifically that they have, if they're clear about their culture, even if I think the culture is a bit crazy town, um, 
than uh, intense intense it's an intense concert intense. <laughs> <laughs> um uh but overall like there's definitely strong interest in like people that want to work in elixir i have mm-hmm. no shortage of people that just want their first shot at an elixir job and that have significant previous experience in other languages so mm-hmm. experienced programmers mid to senior level programmers with no elixir experience wanting to do elixir that i have a fair bit of connection with and it's it's not a perfect sort of curve compared to to the demand like it doesn't match match perfectly and i think the community is well aware (laughs) but yeah yeah, if companies out there like if you if you're considering elixir it really does draw in developers there are developers out there that specifically go because they want to want to do elixir yeah yeah i mean that's that's the truth i think i think the only you know when i when i do have a, a wandering eye don't tell github this isn't going out publicly, is it? Um, it's always like the Elixir job that's kind of like, you know, they're just doing interesting things with the beam and just like really, really trying to push on those edges. And I'm just like, mm, wait a second, wait a second. And then, then, then I remember I have Microsoft stock and, you know, you're, you're here. Um, but it, I do say that there is a, a really passionate pool of people that if you're coming for Elixir, you're going to get someone who's like, who's like in. And I think that that's some of the stuff that Brooklyn Myers and Dockyard are doing that's really important is can we can we make it so that a company starts with Elixir, like from the beginning, right? This isn't the rewrite. This isn't the um, side project that's going to, you know, be a surprise hit because they found like magic market fit. It's like, we're doing a startup, we're doing a company and we're going to just, we're going to do it in Elixir because it's the best tool. I have the talent, I have the, you know, the cheap junior money, but I can get some, some good juniors who are, who I can grow and can grow with the company. And as we grow, hopefully their salaries grow um, and have it be based on the beam from the beginning. Um, I've seen a fair it, bit of that. Uh, yeah. So I've seen a few companies for sure that make the bet on Elixir from the start. Typically, that means that there's a they, that there's an initial senior that really believes in Elixir, right? And then they recruit with whatever resources they have, and often that means training up their own Elixirists from scratch. Now, you spoke to sort of retraining and figuring out functional concepts. I think that's getting to be less and less of an issue. Or at least there should be an increasing clarity there because every JavaScript framework these days is aspiring to be functional. Mm. At least it seems like that's the case. I know React has shifted to a large extent away from class-based components and into functional components. And that seems to be their future sort of. Mm. But yeah, JavaScript is iffy at best as a functional language it it really really allows you to break the functional aspect of of it and to some extent i would say if you want to build really functional programming oriented 
front ends, you should probably look at Elm, especially if you're doing like React plus TypeScript. So you want functional and you want types. Is that is that what I'm getting? You want uh, yeah. You want the compiler to tell you exactly what's wrong, and you want to uh, manage state in a very clear way and avoid sort of avoid accidental modifications of your state by side channels. Yeah, yeah, Elm will not let you <laughs> screw that up. It's like I have a mixed relationship with Elm, but uh, it feels very clear to me that React plus TypeScript is just an attempt at doing Elm. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta take a look at Elm. I haven't had a chance to to play with it. Uh, no hurry, it's not going anywhere fast. Not taking <laughs> taking off tomorrow. Probably um, not. It it moves at a more sustainable pace than Elixir. I like it. I like it. Uh, it's not in a hurry. But yeah, so I think functional concepts are really penetrating all programming ecosystems. You'll find mm -hmm. them, from my understanding, you'll find them a fair bit in Swift with regards to Apple's work on Swift UI. And I don't know if they're still using Combine or if that's sort of an underpinning for Swift UI, mm -hmm. but I think that was all functional concepts essentially. Interesting. And Kotlin and uh, .NET are all uh, introducing Oh, this is pattern matching, and oh, this is that, this and this is that. This functional-ish. We can do functional yeah. stuff here too, guys. Come, please use us. Yeah. That is true. That is true. I mean, I think I think you know you get more people now that know um, pattern matching than you did a few years ago. Um, yeah, from JavaScript destructuring, probably. Right, right. So you know we're we're making inroads, but I'd be curious to see how often that is the first tool someone would use or reach for, right? I'm thinking back to, you did a lot of Redux work and Redux does not have a, uh, yeah, exists on, you know, on the front end. So it's the JavaScript runtime, the default JavaScript runtime. And unless you do stuff like use like immutable JS or something, you have, you have to remember to make something uh, to not mutate data because that's what triggers changes in Redux. If this object change, okay, read, you know, re-render the paint, you know, repaint. Um, so I wonder what that lack of the the lack of the constraint, because you can just you know modify a JavaScript object in your yeah, reducer, and you know, there's nothing actually stopping you from like, oh, in this particular right. um, reduction, I want to just write something to the global window state. <laughs> yeah. And exactly. fundamentally in Elixir, there are things you can do to sort of break out of the immutability box mm -hmm. at any point. Elixir is not particularly strict. Right. But the data you passed in and the data you get out, right. you can rely if it's, on. If it's changed, it's a different, you know, it's yeah. a different thing. And I don't think there's that constraint in, in JavaScript in any sort of like meaningful way where it's just yeah. like, yeah, I passed you an object to state and you just like um, updated a key as opposed to changing the whole object and then just changing out that one, that one key. So I can fall back on my like object oriented um, flows. Again, just to be clear, Redux will break if you do this. It's sort of like, we'll just stop working if you modify an object because it's looking for a different object ID. Yeah, um, I ran into the same sort of deal with Vuex when I was using that and I went slightly insane trying to <laughs> 
figure out like, oh, I want to add a thing to this list or I want to remove a thing from this list. And right. you had to use very particular parts of the API that could be detected oh, as operations. I, I don't know if it was that I had to splice things or I don't, I don't quite recall, but I couldn't just assign push. Yeah, push things thing. or push or pop. It's, yeah, it was very particular about yeah. what I was allowed to do, which Vuex could pick up. That's right. Which is the best, the best kind of library. One that just breaks on its breaks randomly, gives you no sort of like warning and just like, this is behaving weird. I wonder why. Oh, well, yeah. um, that was a fun one to get bitten by when working in the beam where you're just like, oh, I modified this map. No, you didn't map.put. That's not how that works. <laughs> map something equals map.put. That's what you want. Yeah. Yeah. Never done that wrong. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, I'm really curious to see what it would mean to be a beam trained developer through and through from the start. Mm. And I'm really curious if that would mean that concepts like event sourcing would feel mm. more second nature. So the first time event sourcing was brought to my attention and sort of explained to me, I was like, oh, this is actually really cool because this is yeah. this is the pure data without throwing out anything and then we boil it down to the sort of practical and useful data that we would normally just model right as, as our primary data and i've seen event sourcing go horribly wrong like uh, event sourcing a cqrs can be really heavy-handed yeah uh, especially i've only seen them attempted with object-oriented languages of all things uh, which I guess does not help. And, but I've seen event sourcing work quite nicely for sort of subsets of applications so far, where it's just like the history is useful, being able to replay the history and work through it or otherwise have that, that sort of purity. And yeah, uh, and that's immutable. And it's fundamentally a functional concept. Like you take you take the stream of data, you modify it, you make a new projection or lens or normalization of it or denormalization. I don't remember which one. No, it's a denormalization, I guess. And I think that's also sort of functional concept sneaking into the mainstream mm. or being an underpinning of computer science, I guess. Like the right ahead log, that's that's event sourcing for you. There you go. I mean, it is. I think it's a, it's a natural support. fit. Yeah, it's a natural fit for a lot of the functional concepts, right? The idea of a reducer, right? You wind up with a state um, at the end of it by processing these events and processing what it happened, what happened, as just a fact of your system, resulting in some state when passed through this machine. Um, I've got a. Uh, there's a library called message DB um, link in the show notes um, that is essentially an event stream that you, you, you write to Postgres. And I wrote a little library for it, which I, I forget the name of it, Estola, I think link in the show notes as well for my awful language library uh, that wraps it. Cause I just need an excuse to build an event sourced system using this library in Elixir. Um, I'm very excited to sort of play around with it. Um, we've done a lot of event-driven work, but 
purely defining, uh, you know, closer to a CQRS with a, with a lot of read models derived from processing and reducing over a bunch of events and emitting events mm. when things are should happen and did happen. Uh, I want to try a project that's like pretty strict about it just to see what its limitations are, where it's a pain in the neck. Um, but I do think that a functional language is a really nice fit for it because essentially what you're doing is reducing to a state, right? Yeah. Um, and I think when you're working with an OOP language, the paradigm gets a bit in your way because suddenly you're implementing a class for processing events where the class is sort of entirely orthogonal and you just need the class because you need a class. You need something to put your functions on. But all you're doing is taking a list or a stream or enumerable of events and processing them. I think it's instructive for people that do Elixir that most things that you want to do, you end up doing with the enum library. And then you hear about stream and it's like, oh, stream can actually be a bit more efficient. Then you look into stream and maybe you use stream for a few things. And then it's the moment that you're like, hmm, I want to reduce. It's like, huh, can't reduce with stream. Why can't I reduce with stream? Well, this tells you something about computer science. <laughs> I'm not, not sure what it tells you. No. Uh, Essentially, if you have a stream, you don't know that you've gotten the full data set. And if you want to reduce something, uh, it sort of has to end <laughs> eventually, or you, you aren't producing a result while a stream can sort of be passed through a number of different steps and be lazy evaluated and all that. So at the point where you want to change the shape beyond filtering and uh, rejecting things, you suddenly have to start sort of realizing the stream of data. And you, can, you can't do stream processing. Uh, the, so if you, for example, if you read the uh, Designing Data Intensive Applications, the Martin Kleppman book that keeps coming up because it's fantastic. <laughs> that one has a bit about batch processing uh, as part of sort of big data where oh, the the map reduce concept where first you you can map and you can do that in a sort of embarrassing parallel and just map out uh, the information you need and then you reduce so you gather all the data and mm -hmm. put together the results the final result and sort of deduplicate and sort and all of that kind of stuff that you can't do until you have all of the data. And partially this type of batch processing and this type of map reduce has been replaced or the this future was in that book said to be more in lines of stream processing, hmm. which means you're making more or less live computations on whatever data is flowing right now. But at that point, you cannot do a reduce un until you've decided like, oh, this is the section of events this is my set. that I'm dealing with. It. And then I can change the shape of it. But as right. long as you want to want to keep 
dealing with events or keep dealing with a subset of events or parts of the events, then you, then you can map and then you can do stream processing and you can do all this cool, lazy stuff and optimize. Yeah. That's interesting. I think the teacher do said chill a bit, you know, just, just trust me. It's going to finish at some point. Just, yeah. you know, stream reduce, you know, let's make it happen. Put in a feature request for stream reduce. There's Actually, no context. That's it. <laughs> stream reduce doesn't exist. Make it happen. Submit. Next, we can just add a feature request to, to Postgres. Like, oh, not covering all of cap. Can, can you implement the rest <laughs> of it? Yeah. Can you do that real quick? Thanks. Um, yeah. That's how software development works. So your takeaway here, you need multi-core. Is that it? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. You know, I think uh, it's a good idea. It's a good idea. You know, I think I think the big takeaway is that I think that the, the, when you don't need multi-core, it's always a bit of a straw man. That's my big thing. Or just sort of like an inability to articulate why doing uh, Elixir would be hard. And it really is, uh, I don't see the value in it, which I think is on us to just like continue to do what we're doing, you know. Um, functional programming is hard, which it's not. We just need to again just kind of get that out there. There's talent, and keep building those amazing libraries. But they say when you don't need multi-core, you know, if you can have it, wouldn't you want to use it? All right, that's it. Thanks for tuning in to the first episode of Beam Talk Radio. I've been Stephen Nunez. And I've been Lars Wickman. And again, thanks to our sponsor, Groxio, Career Fuel for Programmers. Thanks, everyone.